Good morning, Janet. It's a full studio. I know. We've got more people than we have microphones. I think we better start in better. that case. We better. Well, I've got this sense of deja vu. <gasps> it's all happened before. How Wait, many times before? Is it uh, it's 30 about four, years before? 30 years before. Four times. Uh, I've been told by my guest it's been uh, four times before. But basically, we've got Lisa Dempster on. Lisa... Oh, applause, applause. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and convener of the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Welcome back, Lisa. Thank you. I think it has been four years that I've been on this show in a row, but you're right, the festival has been going for 31, which is significantly longer. And it always occurs at this time of year, hence the deja vu. <laughs> and I said in the foyer, the show is yours, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you. Because basically... Uh, the questions are who, what, why, when, where, the, 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 the general ones. What's the focus of this year's festival? Well, the theme of the festival this year is identity. So we're going to be exploring that theme through about 350 events uh, with about 450 riders. So it is bigger than Ben-Hur, as usual, running across 10 days. How do you manage Oh, we just love it. I mean, there's just such a wealth of great writing in Australia, uh, amazing writers and thinkers that actually, you know, when we're putting the program together, we have to say no to more people than we say yes to, and still we end up with 350 events. So, 350. Yeah, Australia and is very lucky, I think, to have such a wealth of talent. And some of those events are quite curious. The one that caught my eye, Caravan Conversations. <laughs> That's right. So Caravan Conversations happens in an even smaller venue than this studio. Uh, basically, we work with Dumbo Feather, which is a fantastic independent magazine based here in Melbourne, and they park a caravan on site at Fed Square, fits about five people at a time, and we bring a rider in just to have a really intimate conversation over a cup of tea or sometimes even a glass of wine. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it's good fun. But also, it's the Melbourne Writers' Festival, but something I noticed, it's in... Geelong and Doncaster and what's going on? It's everywhere. So our home is, of course, at Fed Square, where we've been located for a very long time, and we really activate Fed Square and encourage people to come into the city. Uh, but not a lot of people, not every person, lives in the city. So we do events uh, in Ballarat, which is where I live, uh, in Footscray, Dandenong, and in over a dozen libraries in sort of outer metro Melbourne area. So we work and Geelong, as you say. So we work quite closely with a lot of different organisations to make sure that those riders can go out to uh, see the communities who live not in the CBD. And pe people everywhere around Victoria can gain access. You've broken the festival down into a series of categories, literature highlights, agenda, uh, live and social, industry, children's and teens. <laughs> what are some of the highlights? Oh, gosh, where do we start? So one of the uh, things I'm really proud of in the festival this year is we have a really strong focus on Australian literature and Australian writing. Um, so a lot of great writers from the emerging right through to the established. Uh, really proud that Melbourne writer Maxine Benneba-Clark is going to be doing our keynote opening address this year. Her book, The Hate Race, has just come out. Tell me more. Yeah, so she's going to be talking about the topic of her book, which is essentially about racism in Australia, which obviously ties into our theme of identity, but is also just a really important topic to be talking about in Australia at the moment. How challenging is that issue? 
How challenging is the keynote or is the well, book? Well, is the book, is the keynote, is, is everything real? Yeah, I mean, real? I think great writing always tries to challenge the reader's assumptions and experiences. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people are aware that we do have a bit of a race problem in Australia, but it's not necessarily being addressed by, you know, the powers that be. Uh, so it's really important that writers like Maxine are given a platform to share her views and experiences. Well, this gets me into another one that caught my eye. Richard Flanagan does writing matter and it would mm. seem to fit in then <laughs> That's right. with Maxine talking about racism. That's right. Another great Australian writer and another one of the keynotes of the festival. I think we can all assume that Richard thinks that writing does matter. <laughs> uh, but everyone, of course, would know that Richard is a very powerful speaker. He's not shy about sharing his political opinions and we think it's going to be a really rousing keynote. But the importance of writing then in addressing the sort of social concerns that we have, how do you see it? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think our media landscape is changing so much at the moment and, you know, a lot of people are talking about sort of the death of investigative journalism and those sort of platforms that we've normally had access to really hard-hitting insights into who we are as a culture and what's happening. And so I think, you know, in that gap, literature really has a vital role to fill in, you know, sharing stories and, you know, sharing experiences. Well, uh, yeah, we're losing the fourth estate, so to speak, in mm. terms of that independent voice. That's right. That that's why independent radio as well is so important <laughs> to so. bring it back to you guys. <laughs> a plug for 3CR yeah, and 40 years on air. Oh. Uh, to have that sort of independence to get people thinking and we've got to get them reading basically. Yeah, and I think Australia is very lucky because we are a country of readers. You know, a lot of people are engaged in reading, whether that's reading books, you know, reading magazines, reading blogs, reading the newspaper, you know, there's a lot of different ways to engage in that kind of literary culture. Um, at the festival, we also look at film and TV, you know, there's so many ways that writers can explore ideas. Um, and of course, Melbourne being a city of literature, uh, it's a city that is passionate about, you know, that activity of reading and it does come out to talk about those ideas. Tim Costello, Fighting Poverty with Faith. Yes, Tim's got a new book out, which is really exciting. Uh, it's called On Faith. And I think given our turbulent political times that we live in, the idea of faith is a really interesting one to explore uh, in a festival context. I was fascinated by some of the politicians who are more fundamental than others. Mm. And some of them we don't necessarily expect or... Yeah, it's been an interesting period and because uh, we've just had an uh, election, I'm sure <laughs> everyone has noticed that, um, but who, it happened, <laughs> happened, you know, it happened it about a month ago and when we were programming the festival we thought, are people still want to going to want to talk about politics in August because, you know, we would have just had so much media coverage in the lead up to the election, but actually what happened in the election was so strange and exciting that I think there, yeah, is a real interest in carrying on that conversation about, you know, the essentials even of what is democracy and how do we choose our leaders. But what fascinates me is the faith of some of these politicians and what actually motivates and drives them. And I was listening to Late Night Live and there was a book on George W. Bush mm. who believed he was chosen by God is the argument <laughs> of the book. And you think, whoa. Uh, yeah, and that brings us to American politics, which is, of course, course extremely interesting and uh we're bringing the new yorker staff writer george packer to the festival to talk about 
what's happening in the US elections, um, but also what's happening in America in general and how that might be impacting on Australia in the future. You've got Sarah Ferguson and Don Watson. That That's would right. Be interesting. That will be very interesting. So they're going to be talking about, in particular, comparing the yeah. American elections which are coming up and the Australian yeah. elections which have just been on. So and any, any inkling about... Or do you have an opinion about the similarities? Oh, I've got a few opinions about a lot of things. But, you know, I think there are a lot of, you know, similarities and there's a lot of, uh, I guess, voter disillusionment. And that's why we're seeing such sort of radical radically strange leaders in America in particular, you know, Trump. And ours aren't radically strange. (laughs) Perhaps on a smaller scale than Trump, but, yeah, there's a few odd ones in there, of course. They they just do things bigger in America. Yeah, (laughs) bigger, not necessarily better. (laughs) So you've got all of these fascinating ideas that that you're addressing. Um, The industry section, seminars and masterclasses. That's right. So we've got a whole stream, uh, particularly for writers, taking place at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Amazing writers like David Levithan, who's a YA writer. Uh, Laura Sakor, who also writes for The New Yorker, will be running a series of workshops so that uh, writers in Melbourne can help hone their craft and be exposed to a kind of new world of ideas about writing. Children and teens. Children and teens, well-serviced. One of the things I'm really excited about this year is that on the final day of the festival, uh, we're doing a Roald Dahl Day. So Federation Square is just going to come to life. We're showing movies on the big screen at Fed Square, face painting, sausage sizzle, all sorts of little pop-up activations to inspire young people and perhaps also the young at heart who love Roald Dahl to come along and celebrate his amazing work. How do you keep your head around all that's going on. Lots of spreadsheets. And don't forget, I have been working on this for over a year now. So I love this period because all the conversations that I've had leading up to the festival are now coming to life. And so I think someone from the outside looking at the program for the first time thinks, how do you keep that all straight in your head? But I guess it's the same with a novelist who has multiple characters because you've spent so long with them. They're just so real to you. But the characters are going to be somewhat more uh, controversial or difficult to handle because not only have you got authors who are an independent lot. They are. (laughs) You've you've also got management. So you're talking about the use of Federation Square. So you're dealing with, with bureaucracies. How's that going? It's going well. I mean, we've got a great partnership with Fed Square uh, and the Melbourne Writers Festival team is very small. So we've got a core staff of only six people who work on the festival, which is quite shocking often when people hear that. Uh, And I'm very lucky because our general manager, Shona Barrett, is a whiz at permits, forms, uh, managing all that risk management, public space kind of stuff, which frees me up to, uh, you know, focus on the more creative so, side of things as I'm, well. <laughs> I'm just wondering about occupational health and safety for writers. I think, I think it's, you know, it's quite a different kind of mindset to be that general manager and to be able to look after that side of things. And of course, we have people working in artist care as well. Well, with people also coming and going, the general public coming and going, are there concerns that you have to address there? No, just the usual ones. I mean, I think a writer's festival or a reading audience are, on the whole, mostly well-behaved, you know. (laughs) There's not too many rabble-rousers except, you know, perhaps of the intellectual nature. Um, But we do get 60,000 people through the festivals. So, of course, there's just a lot of work to be done in terms of making sure everyone even just knows where to go at any given point in time. Uh, Do you keep tabs on the numbers each year? Yeah, we do, our quality count. Volunteer now. You you can actually ask a question oh, if you want, Jen. Yeah, jump in. Oh, can, can I? I? Can I? Can I? Look, 
Lisa, how many volunteers? We actually did our volunteers briefing last night, which we do every year, and we have an absolute army of over 200 volunteers. So, and they're just extraordinary. So, the team is quite small, but then we bring all these really excited, passionate people on board uh, a couple of weeks out from the festival. And one of the things I always do at the briefing is ask how long people have been volunteering for. And we've got volunteers who have been coming back to Melbourne Writers Festival for over five or six years. So, there is this real sense of community uh, and when you come on site at the Melbourne Writers Festival, all the volunteers are wearing their really bright T-shirts and they're always so warm and friendly and welcoming that they make their festival experience extraordinary for the staff, for the artists and for the audience as well. What sort of people volunteer? All sorts of people, all age groups, uh, some people retired, some people at university, generally people who are interested in reading or want to be close to the festival. What I noticed is there's a strong push this year to bring in book clubs. That's right, yeah. So I'm passionate about book clubs. I think they're, you know, these quite amazing uh, little pop-up groups that happen, uh, but the they're independent in a lot of ways, so there's no sort of collective of book clubs or anything like that. And I know a lot of book clubs that have been going for a decade or more, and so we're trying to encourage book clubs to maybe, you know, not go to someone's house this week, but come along to the festival and see their writers, uh, you know, favourite writers live. But that, that microcosm of a book club as opposed to the large-scale festival. Yeah, and it's interesting to see what the different experiences are as well because, you know, some book clubs are very you know, almost academic in their approach that they run the book club like a seminar or, you know, they're very organised and they have a fiery discussion for an hour or something. Then other book clubs are more social and so it's more about the wine and the books, you know, a little bit of an add-on on the side and so... <laughs> wine and literature, what what could be better? It's perfect. Well, coffee and literature, wine and literature, they're just two of the best things in life, right? <laughs> in, indeed. Your particular favourite? Uh, that's hard. I, I mean, that. it's hard, but I will say um, one of the great writers we're bringing to the festival this year is a British woman called Juliet Jarks. Um, she wrote a book last year called Trans, a memoir, which was about her experience undergoing gender reassignment surgery and just generally deals with issues of personal identity, um, her identity as a writer as well. Uh, it's just extraordinary and it was one of my favourite books of last year so I'm really excited to see her talk in the festival. I mean, an organiser is allowed a personal opinion even though they've got to remain impartial in one role. But I just have too hat. many favourites is the problem. So when people ask me that, it's kind of like, oh, I could name ten events very easily but I always try to narrow it down but, to But one. in terms of wearing then different hats, mm. how do you go about sort of remaining impartial or following your interest? Because you'd be leading and giving direction mm. in some ways to the to the nature of the festival. Yeah, that's right. And so I do need to remain impartial. Uh, and we have a variety of committees and groups to help me do my job. Um, one of my favourite committees that I work with is the Audience Advocates Committee, which is a group of 12 people. So a jury uh, from, you know, made up of Melbourne Writers Festival attendees. And I sit down with them every couple of weeks and we have a meeting about what they like reading, who they'd like to see in the festival. And we go through a whole bunch of different uh, authors that have been suggested to the festival by our audience and so that helps me get a sense of what our audience truly do want to see within the festival Uh, and they always throw up some really unusual and interesting people so it's a pleasure to work with them. Lisa, we may be able to come back to you at the end of the session, but Jan has oh, her no, guest. Yeah, she, thank she you. Was from, <laughs> sitting with jaw agape, but 
We're, we're shifting microphones uh, is the noise you can hear behind you. Now, in a picture book for kids, the writing and the illustrations are both used to tell the story. This morning I'm speaking with author Dallas Lyons, but my first question is about the illustration, and that he didn't do. Would you describe the cover of your book, The Night Guardians, please, Dallas? Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, the cover of The Night Guardians is two little kids, brothers uh, Baxter and George, uh, Georgia, hiding behind a samurai soldier, looking fierce and fierce and in his armour with sword and all the rest of it. And I suppose the story's about the way these samurais protect these two particular kids. Well, when journey. you look at the two little kids there, yep. these little kids don't look super brave. They don't look like superheroes. They look rather timid and... It's not really a book about biffo and fighting, No, either. no, no, not at all. It's more of a book of how to deal, deal with uh, your fears in the night. Well, let's hear the first paragraph. No problem. The dreaded bedtime was fast approaching. Six-year-old twins Georgia and Baxter were afraid of the night. Things bumping, things creaking, the old tin roof groaning, and most of all the rustle and howl of the wind that made all things scary at night. They knew what was coming, and there it was. So this is this is a story that would be common to a lot of parents. You know, their kids yes. are scared of the noises in the night. Yes. And you've come up with a much more imaginative way than just counting sheep, haven't you? Yes, I have. It's, um, it's a bit of an adventure and it gets the kids thinking and using their imaginations, which is probably the best bit. And I've had some pretty good feedback on it so far. Um, one grandparent just a couple of days ago spoke, ran into my mother in the street. We live in a small town. And she said, oh, look, my grandson read your son's book at school he told me he's not scared of the dark anymore. And, you know, it's feedback like that is exactly what you want to hear. And um, also my daughter Matilda, her teacher, wrote, read it to the class yesterday. And there was a few kids surprised that uh, her dad had written a book. But, uh, yeah, they seem to like it too. <laughs> well, Night Guardians. There's Night Guardians in a lot of different cultures, mm. you know, the, for the same reason. But Japanese culture, how did you choose that one? Yeah, I, I thought about it a bit. When I initially came up with the story, it was just soldiers. And I thought, well, soldiers are pretty plain looking, nothing exciting about them. But then you see a samurai and you sort of take a step back and think, I'm really not going to mess with them. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's why I chose the samurai. They're pretty awesome looking. Is this something that you did as a father? Yes. Um, initially, I told my own kids this story. Um, I used to tell them, oh, probably about over a two-year period, and it seemed to work, and they used to follow the instructions in the book to a T. And I uh, can't give too much away, but, yeah, they did, and they used it, and it worked really well for them. And um, I was just sitting there on the back of the veranda one day looking out over the farm and I thought, geez, I can make a book out of that. And it just so happens Ellie Walsh is uh, my girlfriend's best friend. And I dropped the message to her. She said, send it down and give me a look and we'll see how we go. And sure enough, here we are with the book. Well, bringing Ellie Walsh in. The book is published by Ellie Walsh's company, Ellie's Books. Welcome, Ellie. Good morning. Now, what is the slogan that is in with you, within your logo? Um, your book, Our Mission. Our mission. So what is your mission? Our mission is basically to give a voice to um, authors that perhaps wouldn't have been given the opportunity via the bigger publishing companies. So would you call yourself an independent publisher? Uh, independent publisher slash self-publisher. Um, just helping people out there that want to follow their dreams by publishing a book and um, yeah, giving them the stepping stones and the way to the process to do it. So you actually run courses on doing the self-publishing too, don't you? Yes, I do. Now, um, well, it would 
go against your business interests if they went out and did self-publishing, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, well, how, why I've done that is because I want to show them that they can do it. But what I really wanted to show them was that we could add that professional aspect to it. I've um, formed a team, a really good professional team from my, my area, my actual area, and um, we put a book and we bring it together and make it look into a professional looking book that um, will particularly stand out in the area that it's um, the genre. Exhibit one. <laughs> so um, sometimes we do get a lot of self-published books coming through and what they honestly often need is good editing. Editing, designing, everything. Yeah. So how much, how much did you have to change your book? Uh, when mine was edited, not a great deal. Some of my grad, I've got, I've got a military background, so I'm probably not switched on with grammar as well as I should be. So um, there was a bit of grammar and punctuation and whatnot for yeah. them to fix up. What so, you could yes. tell with your book is that you've told the story so often that mm. it actually comes more into the t retelling. Yeah. And, yeah, I can understand that, you know, there wasn't that much to fix up. Do you have some editors on your team, Ali? Yes, I have two editors. But the main thing I want to keep as well is make sure that it still feels like the author's story at the end of the day. I don't want to change it to be anything different that they're not trying to tell. So who do you have as self-published authors coming through? What, what do they want to write about? Um, it could be from anything from oh, the bumps in the night, um, grief. I have a couple of books on grief. Um, we have a World, One, World War One diary. We have a couple of cookbooks, autobiographies, mm. um, mostly children's books. But as you know, um, you know many people out there, I think it's, rec um, it's recorded that about 80% of the population would like to one day uh, publish a book. And really, I just want to give that platform for people to be able to do it. I've actually had people coming up to me in my hometown asking, oh, I've always wanted to do that. How do, I, you, know, how do you get started? So I've sort of directed them in Ellie's direction. Mm. But how do you set what uh, or the platform, your publishing platform for your company? Is it being driven by the authors that want to be published? Or do you have some say in the makeup of what you want in your publishing house? Okay. Um, look, I've really set out to give anybody the opportunity. Um, I won't publish something that's offensive or racist or has an element that could offend or upset anybody. Um, I've let it drive itself. As I was talking to you before, it's all happened by accident. I had, didn't set out to start a publishing company, um, but ultimately now my dream or goal is to help people do what I've achieved, and that was to one day publish a book. One of the hardest things to do once you've got the book is promoting it and That's distributing right. it. Yeah. How do you go about that? Uh, I Look, along the way, I've come along different processes. I've found things that have worked and things that haven't worked. Uh, we've certainly come across a lovely lady that runs... Um, um, Ashling's um, Enterprises. Uh, she's a, a great publicist that's helped us in just recently. Um, and it's just about finding things that work and don't work. It's really hard getting into bookshops at the moment, as mm. I'm sure Lisa, yep, she's nodding. Mm. Um, so they're taking not a lot of um, self-publishing 
self-published books, it is really hard to get out there. And we're doing, look, we're trying our best. We're trying to keep um, going with the exposure. And as I was talking before, I haven't stopped doing that myself. I have four books. I'm still out there doing markets. Um, last thing I want to do on a Sunday is read a, a book I'd rather sleep in, but I'm out there trying to get people to realise that I'm out there and I've done books also. What are those magazines that you got us into lately? Yeah, uh, we're in Melbourne's Child recently and Mama Mag. So we're, we're, you know, we're sort of out there and we're just taking it to another level this year. One of the things that happened uh, about self-published books, Ewan Mitchell did. He wrote a book called Tracks and he actually said that self-published books should be able to go into the awards lists. Yes. And he won with that book. Mm -hmm. And sort of since then, there's been a lot of self-published books picked up. We had Leanne Davidson on the program just recently, and she had her self-published books on the Victorian Premier's lists. So, you know, it's always interesting about self-publishing. Oh, definitely. And, and it awards was, sells books. It, yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, well, you know what, for a long time, it's been considered an embarrassing fallback option, but I think it's, slow, it's, it's changing. It's definitely changing. People are starting to take notice. Well, you know, we've been doing this program for a long time and as I say we've had a lot of self-publishers through and for different reasons they choose to self-publish. I had an author through called Paul Carter. He's a country vet and he wasn't at all happy how much money he was getting back mm. for his book. So he decided to go out there, self-publish, sell the book. He's not selling very many of them, but at least he's all, he's making all the money, all the money. and giving it to away to charity. There was another one you interviewed somebody doing a book on the birds of the Dandenong Ranges, which wouldn't have a forum in a sort of commercial publishing house, but because she was in touch with uh, the apiarist societies around the world, she had a market already set mm. but that was and she was selling it yeah, yeah, and she was selling, selling it, it there but, yeah. but in many ways that's because of the digital revolution and that ease of access around the world if you've got an esoteric topic you can sort of spread it globally yeah well and i think one of the funniest ones was lisa edwards she came in with this very readable book it was sort of a romance book one of a three in a series called can't fight fate but she and her main character were Hollywood entertainment lawyers and she wanted to self-publish because she didn't want to sell the rights for the film because mm. she knew she was going to be able to write a script from it. Well, that's one of the benefits of self-publishing is retaining the All copyrights the main, um, and keeping hold of the whole process, being in, man you know, in control of that whole process when it's released, the price, um, where it's going and what you're doing with it. Of course, one of the easiest ways to self-publish is on ebook, where you don't have to worry about paper and the covers and the illustrations or anything. And you did how many ebooks are being published on Amazon, Alan? Um, I think you sort of said something like twenty-five percent of the ebooks were yeah, self-published on it's, Amazon. Yeah, it's getting up there. It's um, it's yeah, it's increasing. And um, look, I I've got a couple of ebooks as well out there of my own in, um, regarding bullying, and that's another thing that started this whole process was that I was having my son was having a few issues at school, and I decided to write about that topic, which was very topical at the time and even now. Um, we are now putting all our books onto ebooks and onto Amazon. Uh, and um, yeah, so it's definitely another way to go for self publishers. But this is a topic 
covered at the festival, Lisa? Uh, publishing? Uh, publishing? Back to you, Lisa. Publishing, definitely. You know, I come from an independent publishing background. I used to make zines, so I think you're definitely right in that people self-publish for a lot of different reasons. Some of it's creative outlet, some of it's wanting to retain copyright, uh, and I think definitely all forms of publishing are completely valid. Uh, we work very closely with a small press network as well, uh, which has an interest in self-publishing. So, yeah, I mean, I just am passionate about hearing people get their work out there. Hmm. Interesting. Jen, any other questions that you've got for oh, Lisa or your We've covered authors? everything. Lisa, can Lisa talk? <laughs> well, of course she can, but she, she does it beautifully. She's so on top. On top of all that's happening at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. we better give people the dates, Lisa, of the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Yes, so that's the 26th of August through to the 4th of September. So if you haven't already booked, you probably... Some of the events are already booked out. Yes, we are selling out, but there's still plenty of tickets available. So you can go online and sort of... Uh, and I believe your site operates better than the Australian Census <laughs> site. And you can, you can still get through. I hope through. so. I hope you so. You can still get through <laughs> and book into session. There are also free sessions, if you know, for all of those impoverished writers yeah. out there to, uh, you know, participate and be part of that community, which is so essential. So, Lisa, thank you very much for coming thank in you. today. And we'll see you this time next year. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, fan. So you, you're going to be convening. And, and I'm on board, yes. On board oh, cool. for the yeah. next year oh, as well. Jan. David, we did it. We've got through we another show. We covered the microphones and we had a good time. Indeed we did. I learnt things. You did indeed. And who were your guests again? Oh, yes. <laughs> we, we, oh, we, yes. We've actually got to say goodbye to people. I, That's I, what we do at the end of I the show, to, Jen. We do, we do. It was Dallas Lyons I had with the Night Guardians and publisher... Uh, Ali Walsh from Ali's Books. Can I just do one thing? Um, we have a, a festival coming up on the 20th of August also called uh, Mama Knows West, an Ali's Book Fest free event down at the Altona Library on the 20th of August from 12 to 3. Get down to the Altona Library. Well, thank you one and all. Thank you for having us. And we will see people next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.